You're listening to The Sipping Forecast. This is a podcast about all things drinks and the brilliant people who make the industry what it is. So pour yourself something cold and kick back for The Sipping Forecast. So I'm Dan Shore. I'm the founder and the CEO of the Cotswolds Distillery, the first distillery ever to be set up in this very beautiful part of the world, making Cotswolds single malt whiskey and uh, a bit of gin here and there. What is the path that's led you towards this? This is not a traditional Gloucestershire accent that I'm hearing. No, this is this is this is as far a West Country accent as you go. It goes as far west as 90th and Madison and Manhattan, which is where I grew up. But uh, I. I grew up in New York City, um, very urban, um, but always with a real keen love of nature. My Both of my parents were from Europe, both very urban Europe, um, middle Europe, um, but uh, they loved their getaways. And, and I think New Yorkers in general have actually a, a surprising love of nature you, you and a need for nature because it is so sort of oppressively urban that you just have to get out. And typically every weekend in the summer, people are just getting out of, out of town um, and you're either a beach person, you're a mountain person, you're a countryside person. And um, from the days, I mean, I spent 25 years living in Europe. Um, I was about 11 years in France and then over to the UK. While I was in France, I was bringing up two boys in Paris and uh, with my uh, ex-wife. And we had a little place in Normandy in the middle of nowhere in the Pays-Doge in Calvados country. Um, it was a shack, but those were great times we spent. So when I moved to London, uh, new wife, new daughter. Um, I felt that she should have the same thing. And so we went off and the Cotswolds is sort of to London, what Normandy is to prisons. It's the nice green, hilly, horsey kind of place two hours west. Um, and uh, so we found a little barn, uh, old barn conversion here in the middle of a farm field, uh, middle of nothing. Um, and we started spending weekends out here. Um, my wife had had a, a real health scare in 2009. And it was one of those moments she works as crazy hard as I did when I was working in the city, which is what I used to do. And it was one of those moments where we said, you know, we really need to try and grab every minute of life we can and just enjoy it. And that was about cocooning in a beautiful part of the world um, at the weekend. And uh, I didn't know that was going to lead me down the whiskey road. But um, one day I was staring out of the bedroom window looking at uh, a field of spring barley uh, right next to the the farm um, uh, that we don't own. It was just uh, our neighbor that was planting it. And I said, gosh, you know, why hasn't anyone ever made any whiskey down here? Um, And in fact, no one really distilled much of anything down here. So I thought maybe I could be the first. Um, And in doing so, get out of my sort of 30-year city career and doing something that I actually enjoyed and make something that I loved. And, you know, you describe this with a real kind of, you know, easy grace. I can't imagine it was that that straightforward about going, right, let's put on a show right here in the barn. No, and I think actually, you know, what sort of helps, I I think all of us entrepreneurs have uh, a strange kind of combination of confidence and complete ignorance um, and and just being willing to make a leap that maybe others might not do. And maybe if you knew, uh, you know, sort of then what you know now, you certainly would have never have done it. Um, and that would have been a pity. Um, so the stars just kind of aligned and um, my, uh, my family supported me uh, in it, which is really important because that involved a move from being weekends in the country to full-time in the country and new schools and commutes and all sorts of things. Um, 
but I think that as far as the whiskey was concerned, it was to my advantage that I didn't really have a clue of what I was doing. Um, I was a whiskey geek. I had years of uh, loving whiskey from a consumer point of view, but really not knowing the, the engineering or the chemistry behind it. Um, but that humility meant that I, I was able to go out and sort of find folks who did know what they were doing. And we found some absolutely unbelievable Scots who uh, uh, between them had 100 years of experience. And, and, and that allowed me and, and a bunch of other guys who knew very little about what they were doing to just learn from the ground up, which I, we've come to realize is actually, in a way, the best way of doing it. Absolutely, because I think there are those things about one can go and just, you know, buy an off the off the shelf solution. But actually, where's the fun or the yeah. challenge or or the creative yeah. outlet from from yeah, that? Absolutely. What were your whiskies of, of choice? You're a self-confessed whiskey geek, as we just just heard. Pre-Cotswold, what would your default position have been for something to really enjoy? Well, so I really got into whiskey uh, through a meeting, uh, sounds like a revival meeting or something, through a meeting in Paris of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And so this is a society that goes off and buys whiskey by the cask, empties the cask, sells the bottles to its members, full cask strength, individual single cask bottlings, every single one is different. And that was a revelation to me because... Frankly, my interest in spirits had always been kind of limited. I, the years I lived in France, I was really into wine and champagne, and I would do what every American expat did, was get in the car at the weekend and go off to visit a bunch of vineyards, come back with a boot full of you know cases of wines. Um, but frankly, I didn't find um, much of the sort of the, the cognac trade to be very interesting because the product I found was kind of really uh, homogeneous. It was, uh, you know, it, it didn't, didn't, somehow wake up the passions, whereas this single cask whiskey that this Scotch Malt Whiskey Society was bottling uh, was fascinating for the exact, for the very differences between them, the differences between the casks, the regions, the distilleries. And it was almost a trick that I thought maybe the French hadn't picked up on. Um, About celebrating difference and the variation rather than going for a really kind of standardized, consistent. Yeah, and, and, and the irony of it is, is that, of course, the French, you know, were the ones who taught us the differences between you know the, the whole concept of terroir of, of, a, of a product whether it's a wine or a cheese or anything being of the place and of the people that make it um, and yet their approach to spirits at least insofar as cognac was concerned was very much sort of mass market export driven now i know that actually if you just go a little bit further south there's some pretty amazing guys making armagnac that actually do it with you know, a lot more so and there's guys in cognac who do it wonderfully as well in fact actually one of my first um real inspirations in this business was a guy by the name of Alexandre Gabriel, uh, who uh, founded, who actually bought into an old cognac house, Pierre Ferrand, and then decided to go off and, you know, was also a restless creator, which I've now come to find myself as, and created a gin, Citadel, and then a a brand of rums, Plantation, and uh, I followed Alexandre's success, and he did great, Um, but he was a little bit of a renegade in, in, in cognac, but, so yeah, it was that Scotch Malt Whiskey Society meeting that really kind of woke me up to the possibilities that were out there in in whiskey, um, and so it was. It's of course been a great full circle moment that uh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has just come out with a bottling of Cotswold Single Malt in the wonderfully irreverent name naming process that they have uh, got called uh, Orangodram. So uh, because I guess they thought it was very orangey, but uh, it was also their weird and wonderful approach to tasting notes and and just and and celebrating the differences that that I I really loved. And then there was one other one that I guess, you know, I really have to mention the story, which was Brooklady, because um, 
in my annual sort of sad men go to distilleries kind of once a year weekends, uh, like that movie Sideways, um, my friend Dave and I found ourselves in Isla and it was raining sideways and we needed to get out of the rain. And we ran into this newly reopened distillery called Brooklady that we barely knew. Uh, and their uh, then head of production uh, was actually uh, free to give us a little tour. Uh, he being Jim McEwen, uh, who's since become sort of a rock star of the whiskey industry um, and who's one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. And uh, the proof of that was that in 10 minutes, he'd convince us to buy not a bottle, but a barrel <laughs> of Brooklady. So the two of us went in halves on, on a barrel of Brooklady. And from then on, our fate was very much tied to Brooklady. It becomes like your home team, almost that distillery. You follow it with its every move and the moves that it made for the 10 years from that moment, 2002, till its purchase by Remy Quantro in 2012 were fascinating. They were kind of the, the maverick guys. They weren't PLC whiskey, as I sometimes call it. They were independents. And they, the person who owned them, Mark Renier, was an ex-wine person. And again, pushed this concept of terroir. Uh, and it was that that really inspired me along with that barley moment in 2012 to uh, set up a distillery and exploring that thing around uh, terroir, and I love that you mentioned the fact that it's it's not just the raw ingredients; so they're a very key thing, but the people who make it and the place in which somewhere is it, is situated. Yeah. Describe to me what you think the 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 Cotswolds terroir is. Well, the Cotswolds terroir, first of all, you know, and this is really what inspired me to to build this distillery is that I, I was hugely inspired by the beauty and, and aren't most of us uh, of Scotland. I mean, there's there's not much you could ask for more, you know, than, than what Scotland has. It's got an embarrassment of, of riches. Um, uh, and certainly on Isla, which is an incredible little place, there's just something about that place that just mesmerizes everyone who goes there. Um, it's a combination of the of the the, the place, the people, the sort of the Hebridean, you know, kind of character. Cotswolds is as different as you could get. I mean, you know, you don't have the crashing surf, you don't have the peat bogs, you don't have, you know, fells, you don't have mountains and whatever. But what you do have is this just achingly beautiful landscape. It's like an impressionist painting come to life. Uh, and it is kind of quintessential little England, you know, uh, rural England at, at its best. Um, and it's certainly, you know, it, it, it motivated me enough to, you know, build a distillery, not, not to move to it to work at a distillery, but to build a distillery to justify living there full time. And this is how much I wanted to be there. So I thought, you know, can we express this incredible soft beauty, these sort of rolling hills, the fruit and the grain, which is what grows in the consoles. Can we manage to express this for a whiskey? And, and that's what we tried to do. But since then, it's taken on an even bigger meaning, which is the people that work here. Um, very few of whom ever did this before, who are all working harder than probably they ever expected to, but are taking more pride and are more passionate in what they do. And I, I really hope a little bit of that comes comes out in in the products that we make. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about the products because I'm interested in, you know, you talked about a, a whiskey um, producing place. I love that's very, you know, there are very many legal definitions and controls and, and things about around uh, Scotch, around Irish whiskey. What's the scenario with, with English whiskey? Are you creating a whole new category? Have you created a whole new category? Do you have an E in your whiskey? 
Well, we don't have an E, and and just to set the record straight, the only it's it's not about those who 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 do, but it's really uh, or don't rather. It's only about those who do, which is really only the Irish and the Americans. Everyone else in the world is whiskey. Whiskey is alive and well and being made in Japan and Taiwan and Tasmania, uh, in the Netherlands and France, and uh, nowhere does it have an E. Although ultimately, that's a choice of uh, you know who makes it and how they make it. But um, I mean, with me, it was with you know all uh, homage to. To, to Scotland, that's where the whiskey that I love the most was made. I now have whiskey that I love from places all over the world, um, uh, but that didn't exist as much um, 10 years ago, nor did the idea that English whiskey might one day be a category. And the amazing thing is, is that yes, there is now an English whiskey category. And I would never have believed in a million years. When I started up, I was, I think I was the second after the guys in Norfolk, the English whiskey company. And I never thought there would be really more than me and him and maybe a couple of others. But as it turns out, there are today 25 distilleries in England making whiskey. So 25 distilleries does a, a category make. And, and I've actually you know, played a bit of a part in trying to get all these guys together, which we have um, here at the distillery, as a matter of fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago um, to agree on kind of creating a a little bit of an industry body, um, certainly not as codified as what exists up in Scotland. What exists up in Scotland has worked really well for Scotch whiskey, um, but uh, you know something that would say what an English whiskey was and wasn't, while at the same time allowing uh, some of the creativity which you're seeing in English whiskey distilleries to come through, and they are doing some pretty funky things down here, which is great. We love that. What's been one of the most satisfying? experiences that you've had so far in terms of your either your whiskey or your gin or both gosh it's been there's this has been hugely and just full of satisfying experiences i mean of course i number one would have to be the launch of the whiskey um that 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 day when it finally turned three years old and uh interestingly it actually turned three years old that's the legal minimum according to the eu before you can call it whiskey and given the fill day that we filled our first cast september 22nd 2014 it had its third birthday on a day that we were due to be at a big in fact europe's biggest whiskey show in paris called whiskey live and so the 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 P.T. Barnum in me um, couldn't resist the idea of actually giving birth to a whiskey live on a stand at a whiskey show. Uh, the logistics behind this were a bit challenging because it has to stay in oak until its third birthday, which was the first day of Whiskey Live. So we had to actually re-rack into a small, into a travel barrel. It's a must-have accessory, your travel barrel. So it's like a 10-liter oak cask, which we took down with us to Paris and plonked on our stand and then the appointed hour and the appointed day we valenched it out of the cask filled it into a bottle and there it was a bit woodier for the wear because we don't use 10 liter casks for just that reason they kind of put a lot of wood in but it was Cotswold whiskey being born in Paris uh, so that was a lot of fun amazing stuff and also kind of a nice circularity with your you know the role of France and your Paris, discovery yeah. and all the all these things yeah fantastic yeah. stuff um you know, we're talking the, in the context well of, uh, you know, if I was ha having this conversation with you a year ago, I'd be asking about very, very different, different things. But we're still very much in the, um, <laughs> we're still in the, you know, the, sh the shadow of, uh, of COVID, although we've yeah. come out of uh, strict lockdown or some back, back in it, including, you know, your neighbours in, in Wales and things. Yeah. Uh, how has, how has the last six months been for you on a personal and professional front? 
Well, on a professional front, it, it's it it you know I'm sometimes one is always almost embarrassed to say you know it's actually been not bad. It's actually been pretty okay, and and I feel bad about that because I feel that this pandemic has been so cruelly sort of arbitrary, almost in a way, in terms of how various industries have fared. You know, if you're in hospitality, if you're in events, you know, you're you're just you're in pieces. Um, whereas, if you're making a premium product, uh, and luckily in this country, unlike the U.S., um, that you can get online, um, which you can't really do in the U.S. You have a very strict three three tier system of distribution, which makes it really hard to have access to products. Uh, and and the power to distribute is is concentrated in the hands of some very large companies, and the only thing that speaks to them is the thing we don't have much of, um, money. Um, whereas in this country, people know that pretty much anything they want in the way of booze or food, um, they can you know find online. And um, so what I always say is that is that I think a lot of us have become much better bartenders and much better chefs during lockdown at home. I know I I mean if you look at my Facebook page. I never thought I'd post my dinner so many times, but you know, I'm really proud of all the crazy stuff that I, I mean, you know, that I come up with, and I also am finding myself making cocktails a lot more. And when I hear about some new and interesting liqueur or or spirit, um, I just get on Amazon and I order it, and it and it come and it comes. And so that kind of move towards more explore, exploratory, flavor led sort of, uh, and particularly where premium shirts concerned, I think has benefited us. Um, on a personal level, it's really interesting. It, it's my life at the distillery had been pretty intensely sort of, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. I was working as hard here, harder really than I was in my city job. Um, and uh, when I started working more from home, it brought back that short period between when I left my old life and when the distillery got started, when I really actually enjoyed working from home quite a bit. Um, it kind of helped with the work-life balance and I got to see more of my wife and, and my family. And so I'm kind of back there. It's really been a full circle sort of a thing. And um, I cannot complain. I'm very happy. And are you resolving to try and keep that on, do you think, as the world changes into whatever it's going to change into? I mean, who knows? There could be an asteroid on its way to us at, at, at yeah. the moment. But um, but yeah, there's kind of I, I resolutions for the future. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I have realized as, I, as this company has grown and grown in a way that I would have never expected is, you know, I'm, I'm not the world's best manager, nor did I ever really want to be. And so I'm, I've been, we've been able to actually organize a company in a way that there is now a great senior management team that can really manage all the different silos from production to sales to marketing and, and leaving me to do what I do best, which is sort of be the the visionary, the slightly crazy guy, the guy who's absolutely willing to talk for England about the brand and his beliefs and and, and when travel becomes possible again, go, go around and tell people about our, our wonderful products. I think many lessons to be to be learned there. And you've also been creating during lockdown as well. Tell me about I have, that. I have. So I my lockdown project was to get all these thoughts and, um, and impressions kind of uh, out of me and onto paper. And so uh, I wrote a book, which will be launched, I think, in the next week or two um, on our website. And then in December, it'll be on Amazon. And uh, the book is called Spirit Guide. And it's uh, the subtitle is In Search of an Authentic Life. Um, and it's all about basically my journey and how I came to go from yeah hedge funds to hedgerows, um, from selling 
derivatives to making whiskey. And uh, it's kind of a call for folks who I think increasingly, because of what we're all going through, are starting to ask some questions about whether what they're doing or the path they're on is the right one. Uh, it, it's, it's really the purpose of the book is to encourage folks to follow their heart uh, and to say that life will always give you a second chance if you follow your heart. Um, and it, it has for me. It'll be available on com from about mid-November and on Amazon from early December. Excellent. I hope I've got the scoop on this. <laughs> you do. I haven't said anything to anyone about it yet. But I think you're, you're absolutely right as well. I think this, I can't find any non-cliched way to say about the you know, this extraordinary time that we've been living through, but how extraordinary it is that somebody else has pressed, has, has you know, pressed the reset button, pulled on the handbrake, and and actually given that breathing space to, oh, I'm going to mangle every metaphor going, but, you know, the hamster wheel has been stopped by somebody else. Absolutely. And that chance to go, oh, what, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And can things be better? Can I be better? And can I be a better version of myself coming, coming through all of these things? And I realised that I came full circle in my family too, because growing up, um, my parents came to the U.S. with nothing. They were survivors, uh, you know, coming from post-war Europe. Uh, and they both did very well for themselves, but in very different ways. And my mother was happy to have a corporate existence and rose quite high in her field. Uh, whereas my father was the guy who walked away from the company, um, wanted a better, he was a, an early pioneer of the work from home uh, thing. And I just had memories growing up of him sitting in his t-shirt in the dining room at the typewriter every day. And I just thought to myself one day, here I am in lockdown doing exactly what he was doing. He'd be very happy if he were still alive. So uh, so that was kind of nice. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Are you beginning to make plans for for 2021 or and beyond? I'm, I'm dreaming of the fact that sort of by next summer, um, short of an asteroid, um, uh, you know, that maybe we can we'll be able to say that we've gone through everything. I mean, we've gone through the, the winter of our probably big discontent. Um, we will have gone through Brexit. We'll have gone through the U.S. elections. Um, what else can the world throw at us? I, I don't know. But, I mean, I, I thought last uh, December when the elections, you know, uh, happened that, you know, we, there was going to be a period of sort of stasis of calm, and, and little did I know. Um, but despite all that, we are planning away um, quite a bit. I mean, I think like a lot of other spirits makers, you know, we're having to, you know, contend with what the world has thrown at us and the shift in what we call channels, the, the different ways we sell. And I think all of us are kind of experiencing the same thing and that there's been a huge pickup in uh, sort of online and e-commerce, which has been great, um, and uh, in the off trade, in the shops. Um, and, and that's, of course, been at the expense of the hospitality and the sort of on trade business. To be completely honest, um, it's not something that I am unhappy with in that I love as many direct connections with consumers as possible. Um, so whenever there's intermediaries, um, even if they're very nice intermediaries, I, you know, I, I, I would like, if possible, to, to connect directly. And one of the things we love is that we, we get about 100,000 people a year uh, through our distillery and two outlet shops in the Cotswolds um, for the tours, the master classes, experiences. And we're still doing that. It's a little bit restrained, but um, we, we still run three tours a day, seven days a week. And uh, there is no better way to connect to someone than if they can come out, see what you're doing, um, get the vibe, and then try the try the product so 
More of that too. Absolutely. And if you're potentially setting loose 100,000 brand ambassadors into the world to talk about the quality of your product and how it's made and, and the place that it's made, what a win. As we say in New York, it doesn't suck. <laughs> What's your favorite drink been in lockdown? Oh, boy. Um, certainly on the quantity side, I've, I've, I've probably gone the wrong way on this one. I probably have uh, abused a, a, a bit in terms of there being just no end of uh, interesting cocktails to make. And uh, just when I thought I was going to get some sensible uh, sensibility going, um, uh, the good folks at Different Guides have just released their new cocktail uh, book, which weighs 2.4 kilos just to give you an idea of how many recipes there are in there. It's, it's just a tome. So there's just such a wide world. I never thought that I would be, I mean, I was always a whiskey geek. A whiskey geek is a pretty boring guy. He's just pretty happy with his dram in a small glass, room temperature, please. Um, and I still love that. But actually, I've discovered wonderful whiskey cocktails. In fact, we just launched a vermouth last weekend. Who would have ever thunk? Amazing. Um, it's being made with local Cotswolds wine from our friends at Woodchester Valley who have a uh, vineyard down in Stroud uh, and some wonderful uh, botanical infusions. And it makes a great Manhattan, although I wasn't happy to take our marketing department's word for that. I had to mix one up last night and worked really well. And it makes an equally good Negroni. And from there you find yourself, I don't know, doing old Etonians and all sorts of weird cocktails you'd never even sort of heard of. Um, so, but one thing I definitely find is um, I'm a big fan of things that are slightly bitter. So I, you know, we also, we, we put out two Amaros this year, um, which are wonderful. They're whiskey Amaros. Um, but I've now been buying every Amaro I can kind of find um, at home. Some are great, some are not, but it's always fun. Um, bitters, uh, you know, so it's just, it, it's really endless fun. And I mean, you made reference to that you're continuing to you know, innovate and create and release new new products. Do you have a wish list of things you want to get through or more whiskey focusing? Yeah, I'm I'm being constrained on that one I, because my wish list I, I could, it would go on forever and and we already are way too complex probably for our own good in terms of the number of different things that we do. I mean, we were going to be a whiskey distillery, but then our gin sort of took off, and then just the way that gin went in this country meant that um, there was a much more that we could do. And gin is, uh, to be fair, as wonderful in its own way as whiskey is. Whiskey plays the whole element of time and wood whereas with gin you've got this wonderful neutral palette and no rules as to what you can do with it so you can come up with just virtually anything so that's led us down the road of tons of gins tons of whiskey and now we've got a lot of new whiskeys coming out um again the amaros the vermouth we've just done our first low and no uh entry we've done a, a, a gin essence which is basically a super concentrated gin which allows you to have a gnt with um like 10 percent of the calories um, we may even uh, follow your lead down the uh, the RTD road and and do something in a in, in a bottle uh, that's uh, fun to drink uh, in whatever mode of transport you might be in. That's uh, and so, but we will try. I think you know the focus will be now that our stock, our whiskey stock is coming of age, so to speak. Um, they'll be more focused on, on the whiskey. Um, the, there might even be a few more private single cask releases, um, uh, some for investors who happen to have a cask and not knowing really what to do with it, but a few that might make their way onto the market. Um, we only this morning talked about maybe having a private cask exchange um, where people could buy 
other people's bottlings. Um, just get a little bit of excitement going because that's the great thing about whiskey. Each one is different. You've been listening to The Sipping Forecast with Kathy Caton, a podcast on all things drinks. You can subscribe in Spotify, Anchor FM, Google Podcasts and a host of other platforms. And if you want to get in touch, please do. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at Kathy Caton or at Brighton Gin and we'll get back to you. And if there's someone you really want to hear from on The Sipping Forecast, just get in contact and let me know and we'll do our best to make it happen.